You are listening to the CMC Podcast. Join us each week for messages designed to equip, inspire, and motivate. And now for today's message from Pastor Paul Kern. Well, are you guys ready to dive in? Well, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. I want to welcome you to our series. We're looking forward to unpacking all that we can learn. It It never ceases to amaze me how timeless and relevant the Bible is. It just never ceases to amaze me. You know, although Colossians was written 2,000 years ago, its timeless message speaks to the dilemmas that we're facing presently today. I mean, literally, it's like it was just written exactly for us. To all the problems and crises that we're currently facing, the book of Colossians points us to Jesus Christ for the answer. I love that. It points us to Jesus. And I want to establish at the very beginning of this, the overarching theme of Colossians, even before we dive in to this study that we're going to be doing. There was a lot of different heresy, false teaching that was going on in the church of Colossae at that time. But at its core was the denial that believing in Jesus Christ was enough for a person to be saved. They didn't believe that was enough. There had to be more for you to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So to those who sought out God, Colossians 2.9 says, In Christ, the fullness of the deity of God is manifest. See, it's pointing to Jesus. To those who thought you had to have superior knowledge to enter into heaven. It was, you had to know a lot about the scripture to enter into heaven. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To those who worship angels, and they thought that they needed the help of angelic beings to be able to get into heaven. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, believers are complete in Christ. And to those who thought that strict religious observances were required, you know, you had to tithe a certain amount of money and you couldn't eat certain types of foods and you had to observe certain types of uh, rituals and and observances and and feasts and holidays and all of these things. The scripture says in chapter 2, verse 17, those things are but a shadow, but the reality and the substance is Christ. See, the theme of Colossians can be summed up in chapter 3, verse 11. Just flip over there real quick or, or thumb it on your phone. Chapter 3, verse 11. This sums up Colossians. Christ is all and in all. That's it. Christ is all and in all. Christ is God. Christ is creator. Christ is savior. Christ is the head of the church. And it was Paul's desire in writing Colossians that we would realize what he echoes in chapter 1, verse 8, that Christ has come to have first place in everything. So Colossians, in this study, it's going to point us all to Jesus. It's going to let us know that Jesus Christ is the answer to everything, everything. So let's start this together. Let's start with verse 1 of chapter 1. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and from our brother Timothy. 
We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from the confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day that you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant. He is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way that you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all of his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience that you need. How many say I can use a little bit of that? May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. All right, let's begin to kind of break this down as we look at these first 12 verses. It was a very common practice in the ancient world to begin a letter with your name. And so Paul starts out here. Paul, Paul was the most important and influential person in history besides Jesus Christ at this time. Because God was giving Paul these incredible revelations, and Paul was an apostle that God was using to to start the early church. So Paul's personality, as we look at this, was a combination of a brilliant mind. Obviously, as you read Paul's writings, you can see he was a brilliant individual. Uh, he also had a very unconquerable spirit. I mean, <laughs> you get stoned and throw out a, of a city and left for dead, and you get back up and you go back in, you have an unconquerable spirit. You're just not going to be uh, give up and quit. You know, I, I think today, boy... What a difference there is. I mean, if, if we don't get our latte Monday morning, we're about ready to lose it. So, And then Paul had a very tender heart. And you see that expressed through his prayers for people and how Paul recognized people. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was educated under Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis of the time. Paul was also by birth, a Roman citizen. Therefore, we know that Paul was exposed to Greek culture, so he had an understanding of the Greek mind and the Greek way of life, but he also had an understanding of the Hebrew mind and the Hebrew scripture and the Hebrew's God. So Paul was a, a, a person who was very well equipped to deal with all different types of people, pointing them to the reality of Jesus. And lest anyone doubt Paul's authority, Paul describes himself. Look there in those first two verses. Paul describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's not simply a messenger. 
Paul's not just somebody that's going around talking. He is an official representative of the man who sent him, Jesus. So what Paul writes in his letter is not a, a, a matter of mere opinion that Paul is giving people. No, this is God's authoritative word that he has instructed Paul to go and give to people. So Paul didn't become an apostle by his own efforts. He didn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll be an apostle. He's not, that wasn't the way God assigned that role of leadership to Paul. See, there, there's three types of leaders. There is a self-appointed leader, and we've all met people like that. Aren't those fun? <laughs> Especially if you work with them. Then there is a man-appointed leader where, you know, and, and, and there's a, actually a good example in the Bible where they pick a couple of guys to be leaders, and then we never hear from them ever again. And then there's a God-appointed leader. Now, a God-appointed leader is, is somebody that God picks, God puts his calling on, and God anoints. Well, how do you know they're a God-appointed leader? You recognize it. You just see it. It's obvious. You, you, you look at them, you see the anointing on their life, you see the gifting on their life, you see the power of God moving in their life. So you don't go, oh, well, we're going to make them a leader. No, you just, hey, for example, you know, if, you, if you're going to have somebody in your kid's ministry, then what you want to do is you want to, to pick somebody who's already doing that work. They're hanging out with the kids all the time. They love the kids. They're playing with the kids. They're teaching the kids. Well, they're obviously called to do that. See, a lot of people, they're just looking for a title. You give me a title, then I'll do the job. You give me a title and you give me some money and then I'll do the job. Well, that's not a shepherd. And what God's interested in raising up are shepherds or leaders after his own heart. So that's what happened with Paul. He didn't become an apostle by his own efforts. Neither was he nominated by some committee, you know, by a church committee to go and do this. No, Paul was an apostle by the will of God. God chose Paul long before, long before, and he brought his choice to realization when Paul was traveling on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. Now, remember what happened. He was Saul at that time. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, and then, of course, you know, when Paul was before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he really shared his testimony. As a matter of fact, I want to read that to you in Acts chapter 26, verse 9. Indeed, I myself, I thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is also what I did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints, I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were to put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. And I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission from the chief priest. And at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you to resist my will. And I said, who art thou, Lord? He said, it is I, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
But arise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for a purpose, to make you a minister and a witness for me, both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to testify of Jesus Christ and to find out what it means to suffer for his namesake. See, God called Paul. He had an encounter with Jesus. As a matter of fact, he was blinded by that encounter. And three days later, God sent a man to him and, and, and confirmed that encounter that he had. See, Paul was called by God, called by God in a powerful, powerful way. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, For we have heard of your faith. We've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people. Now, the word faith there, and I don't know how many of you like to do word studies, but man, if, if you do word studies of, of Scripture, it just opens it up. It's just incredible what it does. So get you, you know, and you can go online and you have a concordance online. You have everything you need online now. You don't, you know, used to, you'd have to have big, thick books. And Tim and I used to crack those things open. We'd have them all over our desk doing word studies, naves, topical Bibles, and, you know, you're exegeting the scripture. And and it's interesting because it opens up. But this word faith here is pistis, pistis in the Greek. And it conveys the meaning to be persuaded that something is true, true to the point that you put your trust in it. Okay, that's, that's the kind of faith that he's talking about that he's hearing that they have. Pistis comes from the root word petho. Petho. That word, the meaning, the basic meaning of that word means to obey. Now, it's really interesting when you get into word studies in the Bible... So, so the concept of obedience is equated with belief in the New Testament. You don't separate them. See, they go together. So, so as we look at biblical faith, biblical faith, it's not a leap in the dark. No, it's based on fact, and it's grounded in evidence. That's why, for example, when we read uh, Hebrews 11, verse 1, here's what it says. Faith is the assurance of things, help me, hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. So faith gives us assurance and certainty about unseen realities. Now, I hear people say, well, I just can't believe in something I can't see. And I'm like, well, do you believe in love? Well, yeah. Well, have you ever seen three pounds of it? No. Do you believe in justice? Well, yes. Well, have you ever seen eight ounces of justice? Uh, Can you put it on a scale? No, you can't. But obviously, it is something real. See, faith does that for us. It helps us have confidence and conviction in the unseen realities of God's kingdom. Let me me give you an example. Okay, so I'm standing on this stage. I don't know if you all know this about this stage, but this, obviously, it's elevated, okay? But what you can't see is underneath me is a whole nother floor. There's a whole nother level of basement underneath this stage. As a matter of fact, I'm standing on this stage right now and probably about nine or 10 feet down is a concrete floor. So 
if this stage were to collapse and give in, I would most likely get injured. I would get hurt. But I'm not concerned about this stage collapsing. As a matter of fact, I have faith in the fact that this stage is not going to do that. How? Why? Well, one reason is, is because I've seen underneath. I've seen the big giant metal poles. I've seen the metal beams. I've seen the concrete foundation. But you know, I've also observed many, many dozens of people up on this stage at the same time. I've seen heavy equipment up on this stage. I've seen cars up on this stage, a tractor on this stage, four-wheelers on this stage. We've had all kinds of stuff on this stage. So see, I have evidence. It's not a blind leap of faith. I have evidence. I can clearly see and know that this stage will support me and hold me. I have confidence in that. See, my trust is based on evidence. So y'all understand what I'm saying? See, that's what we're talking about when we talk about believing in Jesus and having faith in Jesus. And that's the pre- precisely the case with our faith in God. It, it's supported by convincing evidence, both from Scripture and from looking at all the lives of people that have lived before us and lived their life for God and how their encounter with Jesus completely changed them. You know, it, it was, I, I just am so amazed as I think back about my transformation when I met the Lord. Literally, church, three weeks before I came to Arkansas and came to Bible college, I was a drug dealer and I was doing drugs daily, drinking alcohol daily, living a lost, promiscuous life daily. And I had an encounter with Jesus Christ in my bed. And I was high when he came to me. And Jesus touched my heart. And literally, overnight, I was a different person. And then my life just took off. I mean, it just on a track. And and I've never looked back. God did that for me. See, that, that is what having faith in Jesus Christ does. And as we look at faith in the Scripture, and as Paul talks about it, saving faith in Scripture is clearly defined. See, true saving faith contains the elements of repentance and obedience. Both. True, I'm going to say that again. True saving faith contains the elements of repentance and obedience. Both. See, now, repentance means turning from your sin. That's what repentance means. In other words, it's literally like you do a 180, okay? You were going this way, and and now you're going this way. You were living for the devil, and you've turned your back on that, and now you are pursuing the Lord. It's a denial of our old sinful nature. It's a turning to God. It's a pursuit of righteousness in your life. See, repentance just isn't a feeling of, of feeling ashamed over your sin, Now, obviously, that is a part of the process of repentance because you're not going to repent if you don't feel ashamed about what you've done wrong, right? And so that's a very important element, and I'm not making light of that, but repentance isn't just feeling ashamed over your sin. It's a redirection of your will. It is a purposeful decision to forsake the old sinful life that you used to live, and now you are intentionally pursuing 
a life of righteousness with Jesus. In other words, when, when, when I got, and I, I don't know, I, I just, I have a hard time with people sometimes who tell me they're saved, but they don't act like it. Because when I got saved, I got saved to the bone, to the bone. I, I mean, I did not want to live that life any longer. That wasn't my, in my heart's desire. Now, understand me, I'm not saying I'm sinless. I still sin from time to time, occasionally. I'm not habitually given to sin. And when I do sin, it's very different now than how it was prior to meeting Jesus. Because prior to meeting Jesus, I enjoyed sinning and I tried to get as many people involved in it with me as I possibly could. But now that I have come to know Christ, when I sin, I don't agree with it. It makes me feel awful and I want to get right with God as quickly as I possibly can. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? See, this is, what, this is what Jesus does in your life. So like repentance, obedience is also a part of true saving faith. See, faith that saves involves more than just a mere intellectual assent and an emotional conviction. And I watch people. You know, yeah, well, I, I you know, and, and you know, I, I, growing up in church is a double-edged sword. It's awesome and it's terrible at the same time as a young person because you can become very religious very quickly. You can become gospel-hardened, and it's just what you've heard and emotional experiences that you have had in kids' church and in youth group when the lights were just right and the music was just right and the temperature was just right and, you know, you were moved emotionally. And I'm not, I'm not making light of that. that, that there's, that's great, okay? We, want, we have lights. We want those experiences to happen for everybody. But, but faith that saves involves more than just an intellectual assent to some knowledge and an emotional conviction. It also includes the determination to obey God's commands, to be obedient to him. See, I believe that obedience is the hallmark of a true believer. The Bible says that you will know them by their help me. Help me, help me, fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Now, the Bible said that. I didn't say that. That's what the Bible says. So when a person obeys God, listen to this. When a person obeys God, he gives the only possible evidence that his heart believes in God. How can I know that a person believes in God unless they're obeying God? And when I see them obeying God, I know for certain that they believe in God. Because you don't obey someone that you don't believe in. You don't submit to someone that you haven't surrendered to. See, faith is never separated from good works. Never. Never, ever, ever is faith separated from good works. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, it says, faith without works is what? Dead. It's dead. So faith is never separated. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther summed up the biblical view of the link between saving faith and good works with these words. Here's what he said. Good works do not make a good man, but a good man does good works. Yeah, well, I didn't come up with that. Martin Luther did. And not, I'm not talking about Martin Luther King Jr. I'm talking about Martin Luther, like Martin Luther 
way back, Martin Luther, okay? So, so the point is this. Genuine faith does not exist in a vacuum, but it will inevitably result in a changed life. And Paul was a changed person. He was a guy that went from killing and persecuting Christians to literally a guy who died because he was obedient to death to what Jesus had called him to do. I like what 1 John says. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 says, If anyone claims I'm living in the light but, helps, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. 1 John 3.10 says, So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Listen to this. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not, does not belong to God. Now, y'all don't look at me like that because <laughs> John said that, not me, right? And I mean, I know, you know, you curl, your toes kind of curl up a little bit when we hear that. But, but listen, our faith has to be challenged and our faith has to be real. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home with them. How many of y'all like Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit to make their home with you? Well, yeah, oh, so you got to obey. And see, that's, that's how genuine faith is revealed. All right, let's go on. Verses 6 through 9, and I'm not going to take time to, to read through all of this because I don't, I simply don't have time to do that. So that's why I was encouraging you guys to, to read ahead of time. The, it says, the same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere in ch- by changing lives. Now, like I said, the, the, the gospel is not merely a stagnant system of rules and ethics. And a lot of people, they become religious. You know, I go to church. I try to do good. I, I try to be a good person. No. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is living. It's moving. It's breathing. It's growing. It bears fruit and it spreads. That's what the Bible says. Hebrews says the word of God is living and active. It's living. It's active. How many of you enjoy hiking? Getting out in God's creation. Isn't it beautiful? I mean, you get out and you just see the mountains and you see forest and all the beautiful trees and, and springtime is coming and there's going to be new blooms and lots of pollen for all of us to breathe. It's going to be awesome here in Arkansas. But, you know, I, I want to use a natural forest to kind of illustrate the, the Christian life and, and what we're talking about here. A tree grows tall and strong because of its healthy roots that have, are going down into good fertile soil, Okay. And as a tree grows and when a tree begins to mature, what a tree naturally does is it produces fruit or seed. That seed falls from that tree, it lands in the soil, and it produces what? More trees. And through a process of this happening over and over and over over a period of time, you have a forest, a beautiful forest that you can enjoy and you can look at. Well, our lives should be a lot like that, kind of that same way. 
because our roots go deep into the soil of God's kingdom, we grow strong and we grow healthy. We come to church, we're fed, we begin to mature, and guess what we are supposed to do? We are to bear fruit. Seeds are to fall off the branches of our lives, and we are to begin to produce disciples that are coming up all around us. See, that's what it looks like. John 15, verse 5 says, Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered in a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my word remains in you, you can ask anything that you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are true disciples. This brings the Father great joy. So the gospel produces fruit in our hearts, and then it is manifest through our life to other people. See, that's what Paul is saying here as he's writing this letter. So as you grow spiritually and you begin to mature, guess what you ought to automatically begin to do? Produce disciples. You ought to have young men, young women, older men, older women, middle-aged men, middle-aged children, whatever. You're, you're producing that. You're helping produce that and grow them up. So when you're involved in kids' church, you're involved in Sunday school, you're involved in connect groups, you're involved in things that we're doing here that help produce that growth. Well, just like the video that we saw, right? Being involved, serving, giving, you're producing that. In verse 9 through 11, he says, So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Verse 11, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all of his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and the patience that you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in his inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. Now, I'm not sure if you ever noticed this about Paul, but his ministry to the church body consisted primarily of two things. One, teaching, and two, praying. I don't know if you've ever noticed that about Paul. Now, I've read his letters over and over and over and over since I've been a, a Christian. And the two things that stand out to me more about Paul than anything else is him teaching the church, edifying, training, correcting, and then also praying. <clears throat> Paul often talked about how he was praying for the church, how he was praying for church leadership, how he was playing, praying for believers all over uh, that area. The New Testament encourages all of us as believers to pray. As a matter of fact, I believe that prayerlessness is sinful for a believer. I believe it is a, an actual sin for a believer in Jesus Christ not to pray. As a matter of fact, I believe that a believer in Jesus Christ ought to pray habitually. You ought to pray all the time. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 8 says, With all prayer and petition, pray at what? All times in the Spirit, and with this in view, 
be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The Bible's full of examples of leaders praying for people. Job prayed for his friends, and they weren't the best, friend, weren't the best friends, but he still prayed for them. Moses prayed for Aaron and Miriam. Samuel prayed for Israel. Jesus prayed for his disciples. Paul prayed for Christians. And Epaphras prayed for the Colossians. See, we see many examples all through Scripture, and those are just a handful. See, prayer was important to Paul. As a matter of fact, it was important enough that he starts his letter by sharing the nature of his prayers for the Colossian church that he was talking to. So for you to be a person of prayer is very important in the scripture. And I really want to encourage our congregation here at Christian Ministries all to be people who are given to prayer, much prayer. Now, for you to be a person of prayer is very important. And I believe for that to happen, you have to be conscious of two things, two things. The first thing that you need to be conscious of is you have to have a God consciousness. And the second thing is you have to be people conscious. So you have to be God conscious and you have to be people conscious for you to be a person given to prayer. Now, let me give you an example here, God consciousness. And I don't mean, you know, constantly the act of verbal prayer, because obviously we have work that we have to do, and there's things that have to happen throughout the day. But, But you view everything in your life in relation to God. Everything. For example, when you meet someone for the first time, you immediately consider where they stand before God. I mean, when I meet people, I see them at Walmart or Chain, I think, I wonder, they know Jesus. I wonder, if, I wonder where they're at with God. I wonder, what, do they even know God? Do they even believe in God? You know, if we hear of something bad happening, we react immediately by praying for that situation, lifting those people up and asking God to move in their life. If we hear of something good happening, we immediately, God, thank you. God, I praise you. God, I honor you. God, I give you glory for doing that. God, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm praising you for what you've done. See, regardless of what are the circumstances are that you find yourself in, you're conscious of the fact that God is with you all the time. He is ever-present. He is a part of your life 24 hours a day. Now, the second aspect of prayer is being people-conscious. People-conscious. You can't effectively pray for people unless you're aware of their needs. And so for you to be aware of people's needs, you can't just be living in a little island to yourself. You got to have a connection with people. You've got to give people phone calls. You've got to text. You've got to check up on them. You've got to stay a part of their life. As we're connected and we care about people, then we're compelled to lift them up in prayer. I have people, many people in our church right now that I daily pray for, that I lift up daily in my prayer time. Individual people that are going through different things, physical ailments, struggles, emotionally, spiritually, things that they're facing, I'm lifting them up. See, Paul exhorted the Colossians to keep alert in prayer. Chapter 4, verse 2. In Ephesians, he wrote, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times for all the saints. So two elements of praying came together in Paul's prayer life. One is love for God, led him to have unbroken communion with the Lord. And then two, his love for people drove him to unceasing prayer on their behalf. He, I just, I got to pray for them. I just, have y'all ever felt that before? I just, I just feel so compelled. I got I to gotta lift them up. I have to pray for them. See, the prayers that Paul recorded in all of his letters are his legacy. 
They reveal Paul's heart, and they're a model for all of us to emulate. Now, I want to end our study with verse 11 and 12. It says, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have the endurance and patience that you may need to be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to the people who live in the light. I want you to recognize in verse 11 that the glorious power of God is available to you and me all the time. It is a limitless power. Can I have an amen? Listen. God's not like us, church. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get fatigued. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't get tired of hearing about it. God's power is limitless. He is all-powerful. I I love going to God in prayer. Because when I go to God in prayer, I know God is ready to help me out. You know why? Because he's just got this... Whatever incredible movie that you can think about that has, I mean, superhero, whatever, lightning, Thor, I don't know, you know, power. God's got it. And it's just, it's like that all the time. And it never runs out. That power is ours. And Paul says that God's limitless power and strength are provided to you and I through his word and through our relationship with him. And that enables you and me to overcome any trial. As a matter of fact, not only can we go through a trial, but the scripture says that we go through it with joy. We go through it with joy. So as I close, with this knowledge, we can grow, we can bear fruit, we can increase in strength, and we can have joy in any trial that we face. Amen? Amen. Y'all stand with me tonight. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for encouragement that we find in your word. God, help us. God, help us to live authentic, real, obedient lives. And Lord, help us to bear fruit because of our connection with Jesus. Jesus, we thank you tonight. We thank you that you came that you died, that you rose, that you sent the Holy Spirit, and that you live inside of us. And we can have constant communion with you every single day. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. You are all in all. Amen. God bless you and have a great night. You have been listening to the CMC Podcast. For more information about CMC, our different conferences, Christian school, college internship, resources, and more, go to cmchurch.com.